Well, as the kids head out to Kids Street, allow me to add my word of welcome to you all. It is a pleasure to be worshiping with you as we are wrapping up this series that we've been calling The Four Witnesses, in which we're looking at the life of Jesus uh, really through the eyes of the four gospel writers. And the reason why is because his life is too deep and rich to capture with simply one account. That if we had just one biography of Jesus, it'd be like looking at his life as if it were a black and white picture. But together, what we get is kind of an ultra 4K, high definition uh, view of Jesus with these four gospel writers. Because each of them helps us to see a different facet of who he is and why he matters. And so I think it's only right that before we dive into the last gospel in our series, that we take a moment to allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the message he has for us. Would you please bow your heads and pray together with me. Lord God, we give you thanks that you have indeed brought us to this moment, this time in which we can learn from your word, in which we can encounter you for who you are. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and open hearts to receive the message that you have for us. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. So it was a couple months ago, I came across an article in the New York Times that was entitled, Can We Learn Anything from Horses? Now, I expected to read this article and find that it was kind of like a scientific article, looking at how, like, you know, scientists studying the lives of horses and their herds and their communication patterns, that how maybe that illuminates the animal world and, and the world that we live in. But instead, I found a very different kind of article. The article was about a ranch in New Mexico where for the low, low price of just over $1,000, you can come and stare at a horse. Now, you can't ride the horse, and you can't groom the horse. You may be able to touch the horse if the horse comes over to you, but the horse doesn't have to. And you stand there staring at the horse in order to have what they claim is a truly life-changing encounter. A life-changing encounter, this is from their website, Literally changing your brain to be wired toward presence, attunement, and wisdom. Creating the life you really deserve. Mastering nonverbal skills, sensing emergent futures, and much more. All for the low, low price of $1,000 for two hours. Now, before we laugh at this, I want you to consider their clientele. People like Jeff Bezos, Bette Midler, and executives from companies as vast and influential as Microsoft and North Face have all paid over $1,000 to stare at horses for two hours. Now, that should serve as a warning to us. Because I want you to think about this. Those people, that clientele, those are people who have achieved far more in their lives than anybody else sitting in this room. They've achieved exactly what the American dream says we should all pursue. They're at the heights of their careers. They have more money than we can even wrap our heads around. They live in the best houses, in the best communities, sending their kids to the very, very best schools. And yet, after all of that, they're still willing to pay $1,000 to stare at horses in order to find that thing still missing. It's a warning to us that if we think we can find our ultimate meaning in the things that this world has to offer, you may end up staring at horses. 
Because this article is nothing more than a modern-day affirmation of something that Alexis de Tocqueville wrote in the early 1800s when he surveyed American culture. This is what he said. He said, In America, I saw the freest and most enlightened men placed in the happiest circumstances which the world affords, and it seemed to me as if a cloud habitually hung upon their brow. And I thought them serious and almost sad, even in their pleasures. It is strange to see with what feverish ardor the Americans pursue their own welfare and to watch the vague dread that constantly torments them, lest they should not have chosen the shortest path which may lead to it. A native of the United States clings to this world's goods as if he were certain never to die, and he is so hasty in grasping at all within his reach that one suppose he was constantly afraid of not living long enough to enjoy them. He clutches everything, holds fast to nothing, but loosens his grip to pursue fresh gratifications. Written in the early 1800s, still relevant today, isn't it? Because this is how we live. You see, we as human beings, we have a deep longing for something more than this world can offer. And yet, we've bought into the lie that there is nothing beyond this world. That what we really long for can be found in things like success in our careers and safety in our homes and well-adjusted children going to the best schools. And so we pursue these things over and over and over again, thinking that we will find satisfaction in them, and yet we still then end up staring at horses for two hours. Right? Which is why we actually need the perspective that's given to us this morning from the Apostle John. John is our fourth gospel writer. He actually wrote his gospel last after all the others were written. And what's amazing about John is John offers us a portrait of Jesus which is very different from the other three gospels. Uh, first and foremost, it's because John was one of the closest friends that Jesus had. Not only was he a member of the 12 disciples, he was actually a part of the circle of inner three, uh, which included Peter and James, which meant he spent many uh, moments, uh, close moments, talking with Jesus that the people, other people didn't have the privilege to have. But more than that, John knew that the other accounts had been written. And so he wanted to paint a picture uh, for us of Jesus that was unlike anything that we'd ever seen in order to highlight something that may have been missed. And he begins his gospel in a very, very fascinating way. He begins with the following words. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. See, what he says is he says, well, one of the things that we need to recognize is that everything that we see was made by someone else. That all of creation was made by a creator who in his love and in his mercy and power and wisdom made everything. And that the life that we have and the life we long for is only found when we find it in the one who made us. That's what he's saying. But then he goes on and he says something truly shocking. He says, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. See, what he's saying is he's saying, though this light 
is the thing that we're looking for, though this life is the one given to us by the one who made us, we're all groping around in the darkness looking for life and meaning and purpose somewhere else. Which is why the God of the universe mounts a rescue mission. He says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Out of his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. This was shocking in the ancient world. It was shocking to the Greek pagans who believed that the divine reality didn't want to have anything to do with us messy humans and our physical presence. It was shocking to the Jewish people who believed that God was too high and holy to possibly come into our broken and darkened world. And yet, what John says is he's saying, but that's exactly what God has done. God not only came into our world, he became one of us. The word became flesh and made his dwelling in our midst. Why? So that we might know him says, no one knows God except God, but God has come into our world and from him we've received grace upon grace. From him we've received truth. And John says, what you are looking for is ultimately found in Jesus. Which is why it should be no surprise to us that the very first words that Jesus speaks in this gospel is the question, what do you want? You see, after John the Baptist had been baptizing people, he said, hey, look, there's someone coming who's even greater than me, and when he shows up, that's the one you're looking for. And sure enough, when Jesus shows up, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one. That's the one you've been looking for. And so some of John's disciples stop following John. They start following Jesus, and Jesus notices this as he's walking along, and he turns around, and the first words out of his mouth in John's gospel is, what do you want? Now, he's not saying that because he's annoyed by the disciples following them, okay? It's not like he's looking at them and being like, why are you guys creeping on me? That's not his question. Because the word that's actually being used here is the word zeteo, which means, what are you looking for? What do you seek? What do you desire? And what we find as we read through the rest of John's gospel is he helps us to see that what we're looking for, what we're seeking, what we desire, what we ultimately want is only found in Jesus. One of the things that many people have noted, scholars have noted, is that John is a book of sevens. There's sevens all over this book. In fact, we encounter uh, the first seven in the very first chapter. Jesus is referred to by seven different names or titles. He's referred to as the Lamb of God, the Son of God, Rabbi, the Son of Man, Messiah, King of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth. All these titles of, you know, famous people that they were looking for, what John is saying is like, it's ultimately found in Jesus. But then as you move through the rest of the gospel, there are more sevens. We find that there are seven I am statements of Jesus where he says things like, I am the bread of life or I am the light of the world. There are several times when people ask him, who are you? And he simply responds with the phrase, I am. Using God's name from the Old Testament, I am who I am, Yahweh, to to basically identify himself to the people around him. There are seven signs which reveal his glory. Him turning water into wine, healing a sick boy, raising Lazarus from the dead. All of these meant to point us to who he 
is. And the question is, why seven? Why does John use that device? Well, it's because in the Old Testament, seven was the number for completeness. Completeness. Six days, God made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day, he rested and enjoyed all that he had made. He sanctified the seventh day and made it holy. And that would be our Sabbath, our day of rest, when we simply receive from God all that he has provided for us. And what John wants us to understand is that in Jesus, we find everything that we've been looking for. He is the completeness and the fulfillment that we are longing for. And so this morning, I want to focus on those seven I am statements of Jesus because what they show us is exactly how it is that Jesus is the completeness of everything that we desire. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And I think this is important for us because nowadays we think we have to fight for our bread. We think we have to climb the corporate ladder Get the more secure job with the higher paycheck, with better stock options, with a higher contribution rate to our retirement so that we can afford the biggest house and the best neighborhood so that our kids can go to the best schools, and on and on and on. And we think that our daily bread is something that we fight for. It's ours. And we need to keep battling in order to make sure that it keeps flowing in. But what Jesus says is he says, no, all those things are temporary Jobs can be lost. The stock market can tank. Homes can be repossessed. Neighborhoods change. Your daily bread, if that's where you're looking to, if that's where you're looking to to receive it, your daily bread can be stolen from you in an instant. But I am the bread of life. I am the one who knows what you truly need. I don't mistake your wants for your needs. I know what ultimately is satisfying for you, both physically and, yes, in every other sense of the word of satisfaction, I am the bread who will nourish and feed you so that when you find yourself in desert places, I will fill you up. I will carry you and I will provide for you. I am the bread of life. Likewise, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Because we are a people who are groping around in the darkness, right? We're looking for what's, what's our direction, meaning, purpose. Why are we here? How can we take our next steps toward our ultimate destiny? That's what we're looking for, right? We're groping around in the darkness. In fact, on Friday, I was in Barnes & Noble. And what I found is that these, it's not self-help anymore, uh, by the way. The self-transformation section is bigger than the religion and philosophy section combined. Why? Because we are constantly looking for what's next, what's next, what's my direction, what's my purpose, what's my destiny. And what Jesus says is he says, I am the light. I will show you the way that you should go. I will point you to where your ultimate purpose is found because I who made the light in the skies, who created the stars in the heavens, am the same God who numbers the hairs on your head. I know who you are. I know why I made you, and I am the one who can ultimately reveal to you your purpose, your direction. I am the light of the world. He says that I am the gate for the sheep and the good shepherd. And the reason why this is so important for us is because we are constantly looking for safety and security in things other than God. 
We think that systems and leaders are going to provide us with that safety and security. And when they don't, we fall into anger, fear, and ultimately dismay. I mean, we see this in our culture, right? It's every election cycle, correct? Next administration is going to be better. Next administration is going to be better. Next administration is going to be better. News for you guys, I'm not that old. It's not going to work out. I've seen enough of it, right? So have you. It doesn't matter what party it is. It doesn't even matter what form of government. Every system is broken. Every earthly leader will let you down. But what Jesus says is, I'm the good shepherd and I'm the gate for my sheep. I will protect them. I will lead them. So that when you find yourselves walking through the valley of the shadow of death, you need fear no evil for I am with you. My rod and staff will comfort you. And in the presence of your enemies, I will set a table before you so that your cup overflows. I will be the one to lead you in green pastures, to make you lie down beside still waters. I am the one who will restore your soul. I am the leader who lays down his life for his sheep. I am the one who protects them, and I will watch over them. The other thing Jesus tells about himself is he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Which is important in a world where we give and we give and we give to our jobs over and over again and it doesn't really bear any fruit. Or our accomplishments are fleeting. In a world where we constantly long for vacations and then we go on vacations and we come back and we need a vacation from our vacation. Right? He said, if you are looking for fruitfulness and rest, you need only look to me for I am the vine and you are the branches. The true rest that you long for is only found when you rest in me. And surprise of all surprise, it's then when you're resting in me that you bear the best fruit. Fruit that lasts. Fruit that multiplies the life of the kingdom of God into all the places where you go. That's where you can find true rest, true fruitfulness and satisfaction. Jesus tells us that he is the way, the truth, and the life which is important in a world where there's so many spiritual options, isn't it? We're constantly trying to figure out what is real, what is true. Is there a divine reality? Is it a personal God? And if there is a God, well, what does he think about us? We just don't know. In fact, so desperate are we to find like some sort of deeper spiritual purpose in life, we'll stare at horses for two hours for a thousand dollars. I'm sorry, I can't get over that. I just can't. And people often look at this statement of all the statements like, that is the most, that's the most closed-minded, that's the most narrow, exclusivistic thing that Jesus could say. But stop and think about it for just a moment. If God really wanted to be an exclusiveness, uh, exclusivist and keep some people out and let some people in, he would say, I'm not going to tell you anything about myself. You have to figure it out on your own and the best and smartest and brightest will get it. But that's not what he does. He comes into our world and says, everybody can know who God is. Why? By looking at me. I've revealed him to you. In fact, the very night that Jesus said this, he says, he tells them about how he's going to the Father and he says, you guys know the way to the Father. And then Thomas says, no, we don't. And he's like, yes, you do. Because if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the light. And that's accessible to everybody. And you can know beyond a shadow of the doubt who your Father is, how much he loves you, and what it means to walk with him. You don't need to guess nor be uncertain or afraid. 
And last but not least, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Because the reality is, is that one day all of us will find our end. One day all of us will, will come before that long night of the soul. All of us will ultimately face disease, sickness, and death. And the answer is to realize that Jesus is the resurrection. Not to have more faith and pray that the disease goes away, because it might not, but it's to realize that even in those moments, there is life beyond the grave. That after that long night of the soul, there is a new morning. And what Jesus says is, there will come a day when I will return and I will make everything new. Where I will take this world that is broken and lost in darkness and I will reform and refashion it and it will radiate with the light of God from one corner of creation to another. And that on that day I will wipe away every tear from your eyes and there will be no more death or crying or pain or mourning for the old order of things will have passed away and the new will have come. And the reason why we can cling to that hope beyond the shadow of a doubt is because he rose again from the dead. In time, in space, and in history, he came out of his own tomb. And he says, and when I come again, so will you. In all these ways, John is saying, if you are looking for life and light and purpose and provision and a hope that lasts beyond death, you need look no further than the one who is all of those things you look to Jesus. And so the question of John's gospel is the question we ask this morning. What is it that you're looking for? What do you want? What do you most deeply desire? Because the testimony of John and the other four witnesses is that in Jesus you have it. You don't have to clean yourself up in order to get it. Rather, him coming to us, entering into our world, gives us grace upon grace. Provides us with the hope that we long for. In the four Gospels, we encounter Jesus as the one in whom all the promises of God find their yes. The better king of a better kingdom, which will one day come in its fullness and bring his justice and his peace to all the corners of the earth. The God who entered into our world in time and space and eyewitnesses have seen him and bear testimony to the truth and the one who is indeed our light and our life, who has entered into our world. I think that's why John ends his gospel with the following words. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Because that's what he offers us. And it's with that in mind, I wanted to close in prayer. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that in you all the promises of God find their yes. In you we have a better king of a greater kingdom. We can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you came for us and that in you we have light and life and salvation. May that hope overflow and help us to truly live as Easter people every single day of our lives. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.